The Guardian. Hello, it's Tuesday, June the 29th. I'm Mike Durant. Today, a former KGB spy talks to Guardian Daily about the capture of the alleged Russian spy ring in America. In the 80s, they had ample knowledge about the illegals, generally. And through the 90s, with my help, they learned just everything else. We look at the legacy of the World Cup in South Africa. Making sure when the World Cup has left that there's going to be 20 centres built across Africa that are using football once again to engage young people, but actually teaching them about health and education issues. And Prince Charles is accused of meddling, but his spokesman says no... He's just a man of the people. What the prince was doing here was part of his role and more than that his duty to represent the views of ordinary people actually against the interests of money-making developers. Guardian Daily. News from The Guardian. First, newly established relations between Russia and America could be getting frosty again amid claims and counterclaims of espionage. The Kremlin says that the FBI's assertion it's arrested 11 Russian spies is a deliberate attempt to undermine the improved US-Russia relations. Guardian correspondent Chris McGreal reports from Washington. The FBI rounded up 10 people and were searching for an 11th who's now been caught. They accused them of being deep cover, long-term members of a Russian spy ring who infiltrated the United States over the past decade or more. Some of them were couples who were paired in Washington, sent here to pretend to be married, um, live together, uh, with the intent of, according to the indictment, infiltrating policy circles, getting to know important people, and feeding information back to Moscow Center, as the FBI describes it. In doing that, they moved into suburbs of New York and New Jersey and Northern Virginia. Some of them, as I say, uh, appeared to be married couples and had children, lived under false names. But the children who have been brought up as Americans, uh, some of them are teenagers now, and and had no idea that they're actually Russian. But the core of the, the conspiracy allegation is that these people were to infiltrate and become so Americanized that they will be able to uh, pass themselves off in this society and get to know people without raising any suspicions. Do we know anything more about them? What's interesting about some of them is that they uh, appear to be very young. There's a, a man in, who was arrested in Arlington, Virginia in his 20s, a couple, married couple with a toddler and a baby who are in their 20s. Some have effectively passed themselves off as American because they've clearly had um, some kind of English-speaking background. Uh, others were so clearly Russian that they, they passed themselves off as immigrants of some kind. Although, strangely, one woman seems to have adopted the identity of somebody in Canada who was dead and so claimed that she had a strange accent because she came from Canada. Did they actually get any information of import? It's true that in some cases, some of these Russians were able to develop relationships of sorts, professional ones, uh, personal ones, with people such as a scientist who who worked on nuclear bunker busting bombs, warheads. Nothing that strikes me as, as that serious. And that may be reflected in the charges, interestingly, which are not of espionage, but of working as agents of foreign governments without registering. Now, espionage charges, you know, carry up to life in prison, um, even Uh, the death penalty in some cases. These charges only carry up to five years. Chris McGreal. Russian Foreign Ministry spokesman Andrei Nestorenko says he doesn't understand the reasons why the US Department of Justice has made a public statement in the spirit of the Cold War. 
But one former KGB spy, Oleg Gordievsky, who defected to the UK during the Cold War, is convinced the Russians would still be operating deep undercover. No, I'm not surprised at all, because it is high time. They were watching illegals in America since the 80s. In the 80s, they had ample knowledge about the illegals, generally. And through the 90s, with my help, they learned just everything else. But this and is going... so it was high time to do something about it, about those who are naughty, who are trying to recruit Americans. Uh, do these um, old-fashioned methods, as some see them, pay off, or are they meant to deflect from other more sophisticated methods? No, the intelligence service can be very sophisticated. When I was last time in Washington, I asked the head of the NSA, your organization is the most expensive in the United States, number one. And she said, no, we have 16 intelligence services. 16. And we are number two. I said, who is the first? Is in satellite intelligence, and we are second. But the normal, traditional service, what is needed for the success? To find a man who has got access to something interesting, to recruit him slowly, and then use him as an agent. It will always be like this, because you can, can't change that pattern. Former KGB spy Oleg Gordievsky. Some commentators say the whole operation has been low-level and amateurish. Among them, The Guardian's security editor, Richard Norton Taylor. Well, I must say, when I first heard about it and read about it, I thought, uh, is this an FBI sort of training exercise, really? But one cannot uh, exaggerate, really, the kind of bureaucratic nature, slow and unsophisticated methods that the Russian security services, intelligence services, have compared to the Chinese, for example, who concentrate on more focused stuff like uh, cyber warfare and so on and getting secrets through the Internet. But these people seem to be pretty, pretty amateurish after years and years of alleged training, for example, leaving passwords on uh, the desk of their homes. So the FBI guy comes along and he can just open the laptop to find out what this alleged agent has been doing. Presumably, though, the Russians have a textbook in how to do these things. Half these things are open sources, weren't they? I mean, they might be old, semi-retired Russian uh, intelligence officers controlling these people. They're probably higher-level people going for higher-level and more sophisticated secrets. So I'd be extremely surprised if this is the only Russian intelligence effort in the United States. And if it was, the United States should be extremely happy. And with the FBI tracking them, as they claim for the last yeah. 10 years or so, in fact, was the FBI feeding them information? It could well be. And even if they weren't, information 10 years ago, even five years ago, is considered out of date these days, whether it's policy plans or the state of the art on some technique or a new engine for an aircraft or whatever. MI5 also says that about the Russians here, that they're interested in high-tech inventions, and, but they're, and they're interested in just picking out people who one day may be an important person, agent in place. Are we then to believe that there are embedded Russian spies living on a day-to-day -day basis in the UK? A couple of years ago, MI5 said that the Russians have increased their number of spies in Britain to what they called Soviet-era levels, and I'm told it means about 20 or 30. Elsewhere on The Guardian website, the US Vice President Joe Biden has put his foot in it again. Details at guardian.co.uk slash world. There's a story about a drunk trader who bought 7 million barrels of oil after a weekend binge drinking. Find that at guardian.co.uk slash business. 
Plus read the FIFA Chief's apology to the FA for Frank Lampard's disallowed goal. That's guardian.co.uk slash sport. Away from the England team now, so back to South Africa, where there's been much talk about what the legacy of the World Cup should be. One goal is a non-governmental organisation which thinks it should be about improved education for children in the region and aims to use the influence of football to achieve its goal. And while FIFA has been criticised for its lack of investment at a community level, its backing of one goal has been good for its image. To find out more, The Guardian went along to the Johannesburg launch of the Education for All programme. First one to answer this question correctly. Who played on the opening day of the World Cup? Play. I'm Ben Tegg, I'm Head of Football Relations at One Goal. We're one of FIFA's partners, it's been great, Set Blatter is our chair. FIFA have their, have their business in terms of the, the business of football and the corporate side of football and everyone reports on the negative side around that. What people don't report quite often is in terms of the CSR side and the work that, people, that FIFA are doing in terms of delivering to young people, making sure when the World Cup has left that there's going to be 20 centres built across Africa that are, are using football once again to engage young people but actually teaching them about health and education issues. Today's um, part of a two-week programme um, sponsored by the Qatar Football Association where we're actually, you know, one goal is about using using football to bring children into education in a campaign but this is actually showing how you can use football to educate children on the ground. I think one of the important things if you look around the field and there's a couple of hundred children out here is that they're all playing football but they're all having education experiences as well so learning about geography through the teams at the World Cup and actually learning about the citizenship and how they can better themselves as a person. My name's Nolan Campos and I'm 11 turning 12. Oh, when I grow up, I want to be a soccer player. I've dreamed of it my whole life. So without education, just forget it. Because without education, you can't go that far. And some children who don't have it have a lot of potential. Most goals will come always when the, the other team loses the ball. I'm Ronald de Boer. I'm an ex-player from Holland. I played two World Cups in 94 and 98. I was the guy who missed the penalty against Brazil. <laughs> I must say FIFA is doing a great job also, uh, of course they make billions of money. FIFA is really uh, pushing this uh, forward uh, on the website and everything and they, they let people know uh, the awareness of, of this problem. So they, they also deserve a compliment, but you will always have people who are maybe uh, less involved and you want to of course uh, yeah, drag them in. And uh, maybe by doing this, by, by me, but by all the other ambassadors, we, we hope them, uh, to wake them up. It doesn't stop here, of course, uh, that's logic. Uh, after the World Cup, the children are still here, the World Cup is gone, but the kids are still here. And that's why we have to uh, uh, give this attention to the world and uh, hopefully uh, yeah, the leaders of the world uh, give this uh, yeah, and, uh, push forward. Hello, I'm Patrick Boma, uh, former Cameroon International. Oh, I've been approached and uh, see, I saw that uh, the project is uh, something uh, really interesting. Uh, the, maybe the right moment uh, chosen to start uh, uh, to, to, to be known because of the World Cup and uh, to, to start and leave uh, uh, a real message that can be followed by the, especially by the government who have to take that responsibility. Uh, in order to, to educate uh, the populations. You cannot cross the halfway line and play. I'm Sam Barrett and I'm the media director for One Goal. I don't think football's ever really thought about how it can give back in the world. It has lots of really good grassroots projects, such as the one we're here at today, 
but it's never thought about the role it can play within politics. And I think this World Cup is creating a platform for heads of state to come through for the 11th of July for the summit to actually talk about what can a genuine legacy be beyond stadia and infrastructure to give something that's far more substantive. We're expecting for Zuma to invite 25 heads of state which will include lots of African leaders, but also some others from, from the rest of the world. So we're expecting Lula to be there and many other guys to come in, just not only to make commitments for, for further funding, but also just to connect with sport and football and just to get a stronger legacy so that by the next time of the Brazilian World Cup, every child's in school. That report compiled by The Guardian's Peter Sale. Finally, in an unusual step, Clarence House has made a robust defence of Prince Charles, following a High Court case last week in which a judge described the Prince's intervention in planning development as unexpected and unwelcome. This relates to the development of the old Chelsea Barracks, a prime site near the Thames in London. Here with the details is The Guardian's Robert Booth. There has been a long-running High Court case uh, which has uh, looked at the aftermath of the collapse of a three billion pound scheme to build new housing on the site of the former Chelsea barracks. What happened was that Prince Charles intervened with the Qataris who owned the site when he saw the designs, modernist designs, for the barracks site and he didn't like them. Um, he wrote to the Qatari Prime Minister explaining why he didn't like them and he subsequently had tea with the Emir of Qatar at Clarence House when he said more of the same. Shortly afterwards, the planning application was withdrawn and uh, the architect Richard Rogers the modernist was sacked and that led to a contractual dispute which reached the high court and in the high court we heard lots and lots about how the prince had got involved and how he'd used his aides to apply pressure to the Qataris and others um, about the prince's views. Is it fair to say that because of the prince's direct influence, the design has been changed? That's certainly how it appeared in the court case. The high court judge found in favour of the side that was making that case and against the side that was saying that it was nothing to do with the uh, influence on the emir by Prince Charles and, and certainly the documents that were published through the high court including the letter from Prince Charles in full to the Qatari prime minister show the uh, weight of Prince Charles's feeling about the whole matter. So what has Prince Charles or his people, how have they replied? The Prince's private secretary today, Sir Michael Peets, has taken the opportunity to, to fight back in quite strong terms, claiming that actually what the Prince was doing here was part of his role and more than that his duty to represent the views of ordinary people actually against the interests of money-making developers and that he did so because he felt that these people's voices needed to be heard and otherwise would have been. Is this unusual for the palace to speak quite so stridently? Well, we don't often get an opportunity to hear from Sir Michael Pete, who's the prince's right-hand man. We will also see that the, the prince's own wealth, which comes from the Duchy of Cornwall, is based on a property empire itself. And some of the tenants of the duchy have had a great deal of trouble trying to get through to him about their own gripes. Robert Booth, here now to discuss the prince's involvement in public matters, and whether he is a man of the people is Guardian writer Simon Jenkins. I asked him if the Prince is straying into the role of MP. I think he's clearly not an MP. I'm not altogether sure he was speaking for the common man, he was speaking for himself. Uh, I have to say he's perfectly entitled to speak for himself. He has absolutely no constitutional standing at all, and he has no legal standing at all. So a, a view he expresses on something like architecture 
is, as far as I'm concerned, perfectly legitimate. Uh, whether he's wise to do it is a totally different matter. But, but as far as the law stands, um, he's, he, he can do what he likes. The Qataris can agree with him or disagree with him. He's, he's got no power over the Qataris. He's got no power over the planning system. Um, the, 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 to speak for the common man, I mean, I think probably where there's some justification what he says is he, he claims that his view on architecture is that of, of, of what might be called the mass of the people. I think there's something in that. It seems like this is more a case of less of putting his opinion forward. It's more a case of lobbying because his influence changed the plans for this development. He's not meddling. He's just expressing an opinion. It has to be said also that there was never any chance of this plan going through the planning committee. Um, the architects had squared some of the planning officers, but it was abundantly clear that, <clears throat> that the local people and the representatives on the planning committee were going to throw it out. And it was withdrawn the day before the planning committee met. But because the prince has, it's the prince that said it, it becomes more than opinion, especially when he's writing directly to the developers. Well, I've done that. In a sense, he's got, he's got influence because he's got a certain amount of people who agree with him. I and mean, that's the same as a rock star expressing an opinion. I mean, why should Bob Geldof be listened to? Bob Geldof is invited to summit conferences by prime ministers. He's got no locus at all. The Prince Charles is no different from Bob Geldof. Guardian writer Simon Jenkins, our very own Bono. That's it for today's Guardian Daily. Producing today, Tim Maybe. I'm Mike Duran. Thanks for listening. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world.